Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. You know, we usually deal a lot of times with things like Saul, right? Losing the kingdom and, and so forth. We talk like like even with Judas and so forth. Not that there's a scripture specifically to counterfactual knowledge, but I've always loved in Esther 4.14, specifically with Mordecai and his wisdom towards Esther. And it's very interesting because obviously they're dealing with the situation that Israel, the, the Israelites are going to get wiped out, right? And this is what it says in 4.14. It says, for if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your household will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. So I love the fact that he's coming to Mm -hmm. her, and he's like, you know what? God's going to deliver this anyways. Either way, the Jews are going to be delivered. We've been promised this. We know it. It is true. But maybe you specifically— we're built for this for this time specifically, and maybe you don't know that or not, or you're going to perish because you just give in, you know. So I, I always found that was very interesting as well. But I'd love to go through a, a few different verses that are more on counterfactual knowledge. Yeah, right? and when we're talking about counterfactual knowledge. For us, you want a biblical account. James White cannot go to the scripture and show you where the scripture states that every evil thing a person does is predetermined by God, by decree, and they had no choice but to do that, where they could have actually had an alternative. We actually believe what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. You know, uh, it's very clear. Paul says that, you know, you know, in James chapter yeah. 1 as well, but let no one say he's, when he's tempted, he's tempted of God. God tempts no one, James 1. God is good. He doesn't do evil, okay? But in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, uh, God is faithful. With the temptation, he will also give you a way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. What's he telling us right there? He's telling us that everything is not fixed in regard to your decisions, that you are the one who makes a decision to do evil or not. He says he's faithful, right? He's faithful. He'll give you the power, give you the wisdom, he'll give you the strength to endure temptation. Uh, He's he's faithful to, along with the temptation, along with the temptation, give you a way of escape. The Greek word's ekbasis, right? Ek, come come out from ekbasis, to escape uh, the temptation to endure it. So you do have a choice. It's not all predetermined. As far as what you'll exactly do and God predetermined that you have to do this. No, God gives you a choice. Oh, he plugs you in knowing what choices you're going to make, but they are wholly your choices, my choices. And when we speak of counterfactual knowledge, uh, which is very important when you understand middle knowledge because middle knowledge depends upon uh, counterfactual knowledge, is that counterfactual knowledge is that God knows what would happen had you made another choice. And that's what blows me away about the magnificent of God, magnificence of God's wisdom. Creates it's like herding cats, right? You would think, but he creates, but he's just that wise and that powerful and that sovereign. Where he can create billions of people, and they're going to make choices, but he can plug them in at the right place at the right time to achieve his ultimate goal, right? So it's interesting when you look at counterfactual knowledge uh, is the fact that there's contingencies that God knows that had I called in today and said, "Man, Chad, you know." I had to babysit your kids for three hours a day, which I did. I, I love doing it, you know. And man, I'm trying to juggle getting ready for this thing and so forth. Uh, and I'm not going to show up. He knows what the show would have been like or if there had, would even be a show if I didn't show up today. Because that shows you that he hasn't predetermined 
what we must say, think, and do by decree. The fact is, the scriptures show us that there is counterfactual knowledge. Chad just gave a couple of really, really good examples. Let me give you some more. And if you can show there's counterfactual knowledge, in other words, it's knowledge that's counterfactual. It hasn't actually become fact because it's what would have been had circumstances been different. But the fact that God reveals that he would know what things would be like had circumstances been different show you that he knows how people will react in certain circumstances, which shows you that not everything is decreed. So a couple of those examples. One of my favorite, okay, if you're taking notes, this one is a really good one. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 9 through 14. And that's when King Saul is so jealous of David, he's, he wants to kill him, and he's chasing him, right? And what he does uh, is David goes into Calah, and when he gets there, uh, he's concerned. He starts seeking the father. He wants to know. And now they're rallying behind David. When he gets to the city, they're just happy to see him, man, because he's got a great reputation. But David prays and says, you know, to the Lord, uh, is Saul going to come here? Yeah, he's going to come there. Basically, is he going to kill me? If you stay there, he's going to kill you. He asked the Lord, he says, if Saul comes, because David couldn't know this because the people were rallying around him, will the people of Calah deliver me into Saul's hands? The Lord says, yes, if you stay there, David, that's, that's, that's exactly what's going to happen. And therefore, David knows to take off. And then David takes off. Uh, King Saul gets the news, and then he, he stops the excursion that he was planning. Uh, we also have the prophetic warnings, for instance, Deuteronomy 18, 22, which are, if a prophecy, a prophet is known whether his prophecy has come to pass or not, yet a prophet, a prophet gives contingencies if you repent, kind of like Jeremiah chapter 18, you know, the, the, the potter and his will, you know, he, if he determines because a nation is wicked, he's dealing with the nations and with Israel, he brings Jeremiah <coughs> to the potter's house and he, you know, what is he molding? And he says, if the potter is planning blessing on a, on, on, on a nation, that's, that's what God is saying he, he's doing. If the potter, God is the potter, is planting blessing, but in his hand that nation be, turns evil, then he shall plan not to bless him, but to destroy him. However, if the Lord is, is planting blessing and, and, and massaging blessing upon a nation, if that nation that he's planting blessing upon, uh, or, or I should say evil upon, because they're, they're, or destruction upon because they're evil, if they repent, he'll mold them for blessing. That's a really powerful picture. But it's important to understand that with counterfactual knowledge. Because in Jeremiah chapter 38, uh, Chad and I have been in Jeremiah lately. Uh, we were a couple months ago and we went and did uh, some teachings in one of our fellowships over in uh, uh, Texas. Is We didn't cover this though. In Jeremiah chapter 38, uh, the Lord says to Zedekiah, king, through Jeremiah, it says, thus saith the Lord, that if you resist Babylon and go into captivity and accepting the discipline that Israel needs to go through 70 years. If you resist that, the city will be burned, you know? Uh, if you don't resist that, the city won't be burned. Of course, you look at the story, there's resistance and so forth. Zedekiah ends up getting eyes poked out, city burns and so forth. But God's saying what it's going to be like based on what you decide here. In other words, guess what? Human decision. If this is just all a script that God writes and he determines exactly what person to do and they have no choice about it, then this is just a charade. Nothing is real. There's no real, that's where there's no meaning in life, Mr. Mr. Uh, White. If, if everything is just a charade and we're doing exactly what God, then there's actually only one God being that exists in the universe. It's pantheism. Because if I'm doing and saying and thinking and making every decision, it's basically God doing it through me by his decree, then there's only one being. And I don't know if James White realizes what he's teaching there or what the implications of what he's teaching can mean if he's the only being in the universe and everything that actually takes place Everything is basically an expression of him. And since there's good and evil in the universe, 
then God would be evil too. I think he needs to think that through. And I don't want to get too philosophical, but I believe that's a, that's something that we need to consider. Jesus teaches counterfactual knowledge over and over and over again that God has counterfactual knowledge. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 21 through 24, you remember when he upbraids the cities that rejected him, even though he did you know mighty works and miracles, Capernaum, his own home area there by the Sea of Galilee, and he upbraids them, he says, because of the miracles that were done in you <coughs> were done in Nineveh. They would have repented a long time ago. Okay, it doesn't mean they went to fall back into sin just like they did after they did, uh, uh, I should say, he says, if they were done, Nineveh does repent. But if they were done in Sodom, they would have yeah. repented a long time ago. So Jesus knows exactly what would have happened had he done all his miracles in Sodom. They would have repented. How can he know that? So James White was like, is like, well, God can't know that. Jesus says he does know that. I'm going to go with Jesus over James White and John Calvin every time. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 24, Jesus said it would have been better for Judas had he never been born. How does he know that? Because he knows all the counterfactuals. Jesus was born. How does he know what it would be like? Because he knows what it would be like. You know, uh, Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34, uh, Jesus said to Simon that, you know, Satan has sought to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you so your faith won't fail. He knows that if he didn't pray for him, that Peter's faith would fail because he knows. And this is something we really need to think about. How does he know that? Because he would know, he knows Peter more than Peter knows. He knows Peter so much that he knows Peter's going to deny him three times before the cock crows. He knows uh, that he's going to struggle in his faith big time. And he knows that if he didn't intercede for him, he would fail because he knows us that well. He knows our decisions. That's just Mr. White and others, our countless friends. That's just trusting God to be more powerful. In fact, where do you ever want to even arrive at the idea that God doesn't know counterfactuals, that God isn't all-knowing and wouldn't know what everybody would freely choose to do. That's not from Scripture. You're getting that from a tradition, okay? You're having a lesser view of God that comes, I believe, out of Gnosticism. In fact, I don't want to get on a rabbit trail here, but I would love to see James White. He was challenged by Ken Wilson to a debate. who wrote a, a tome, and then reduced it to a smaller book uh, against, uh, you know... Foundations of Augustinian Foundations of Augustinianism, yeah. which is Gnosticism and Stoicism and so forth, and showing that Calvin got his views from Augustine, who got them from Gnosticism, which painted a very ugly view of God. And now I believe James White, and I believe these other Calvinists, those who truly are putting the trust in Jesus, they're brothers, they love the Lord. But it's like me talking to my family members, and one of them saying, you know how dad really is? He really wants people. He really decreed that they'd be evil, and that when we grew up, he made sure we did evil and blamed us. And I would say, you know what? You're really my, 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 my sibling, but that's not God. That's not how it is. Please think about what you're saying and think about what you're going to do because when dad gets here, you're going to have to give an account for bearing false witness against him. So that's a concern that I have for these guys. One more I'll give is John chapter 18, verse 36. Jesus said, my kingdom is of this world. I'm sorry, my kingdom is not of this world to Pilate. If my kingdom were of this world, then my kingdom, my, my, my servants would fight. Well, how does he know that? Because he's God and because God knows all things. He knows every decision that we would make in every circumstance, that is such a more sublime, beautiful, magnificent view of God than the Calvinistic view and the open theist view of God where you can't know future contingencies based on free moral choices made by those who have libertarian free will. So it breaks my heart because Calvinists for long, and I, and I stress this because Calvinism for lo, far too long has been pulling the wool, people over, wool over people's eyes saying, oh, we have such a high view of God. You have less a view of God's power less view of God's wisdom, and certainly as well, a very diminished view of God's goodness because Calvinists, like James White, believes that God created most people to burn forever or that the broad road, the people that go down that road to destruction have been predetermined to do so even though God could just simply snap his fingers and predetermine them to go the opposite way. 
And he believes that that's somehow, I mean, my heart breaks because how do these guys approach God in prayer? They're making him worse to the devil. And you're going to him not even knowing if you're one that he's really been propitious toward. That Because as one Calvinist leader said, uh, don't a counselor shall never tell a counselee. And think of Jay Adams and Competent Counsel, that book, which has a lot of good things in it. But he says the counselor shall never tell the counselee that Jesus died for him because nobody knows who Jesus died for. Really? My Bible tells me in, in 1 John 5, 13, these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. We know we have eternal life because we know God so loved the world. He loves us. That Jesus tasted death for everyone. He not only uh, he, He's the payment not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. We go on and on with that. And therefore, I can know that he loves me and wants me to come to him. And I can know that he's made good on his promise. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavily heavy laden, I will give you rest for your souls. So those of you who come to him, you can have assurance. In Calvinism, it's really hard to have assurance because you're wondering if he's been the mo- a monster toward you or good toward you. Yeah, and, you know, we want to dig in specifically. I know we dealt a lot with just the scriptures on counterfactuals and so forth because we want to lay a groundwork there. But what we want to do is go to the proof text and see what we've done is splice together. I believe every time that James White specifically mentions Genesis 50 here. So we're going to go through this and then we're going to exegete the text a little bit and see, does it teach the determinism that James White is espousing? And so in scripture, we are given numerous examples where God explicitly says, Genesis 50, 20, it's been discussed on your program many, many times by all sorts of different people, but the text says what the text says. Joseph, knowing that his brothers have committed evil against him, knowing that what they did was wrong, knowing even that God had actually restrained their evil. I I don't know why God didn't just put him in a situation where they would do freely, But God actually restrains men's evil. God actually hardens men's hearts in other situations. Why would he need to do any of this if he has just put them in situations where they act freely? But in the situation of what the brothers did to Joseph, God specifically says through Scripture, you meant this for evil. He does not excuse their sin. He does not say, oh, you're just puppets on a string, so it doesn't really matter. He knew what filled their hearts. He knew that God had restrained them from killing him. And yet, in the very same sentence, he says, God intended it for good and to save many alive to this day. He uses the exact same Hebrew term in both places. It can't be avoided. And so in one horrific act, I mean, think of the evil of the brothers in deceiving their father and his grieving and wailing and sending their brother off into slavery. This is horrible stuff. And yet God intended it for good. He understood, Joseph understood why, if that's true, if this is a picture of Molinism, why did God have to restrain the brothers from killing Joseph? Didn't he know that that's what they would want to do? He literally violated their creaturely freedom by restraining them from killing Joseph. Remember, the older brother had to be brought in to do that. And so he, why, how does that, how does anything where God hardens hearts so that nations are destroyed, hardens Pharaoh's heart, he he restrains evil with, with Abimelech, he restrains evil with Joseph's brothers. This seems to be God acting against autonomous actions of men If middle knowledge gave him the basis for just putting him in the proper situations, why would he ever have to then, as as Justin put earlier, if it's a hands-off thing, how how come there's so much hands getting involved here? 
Yeah, I, I got so much to say there. I know, it's befuddling <laughs> because it's actually arguing our point. But the, the, the I mean, there's, like a Calvinist the, there, there's so many problems there. The, the why would God need to do any of this? Why would God need to restrain any of this? Why would God need to do any of it? It is so interesting to hear him saying if that. If it's all predetermined, why would God do any of that? Does that make any yeah, sense? I can't, I can't listen to that. And I'm wondering what's going through his mind. Is he actually, you know... A, I let God deal with his heart, but it's like, wow, are you hearing yourself? There's cognitive dissonance going on, you know? Yeah, there's something going on there. In fact, I think, because uh, I listen, I was able to listen to the debate once when I was up in Idaho, and they're uh, late at night. My my lovely wife, enduring until like, I don't know, it was one in the morning or whatever, let me have me listen to this debate, because uh, I knew I had so many hours to deal with everything. And when I heard this, I was like, and I thought, what in the world? I've heard him do this before. And then to hear, uh, you know, uh, Craig Basically, Craig basically saying, you know, get your hands off of our scriptures, you know. He didn't say that, but he's, he's saying, gonna say that, you, yeah. you know, if we're going to play that, that's great. Yeah. Maybe we can, uh, well, I'll address it first because it's, there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot of inconsistencies to unpack. We believe that God allows people to do evil. We just talked about the cross. He take, picked Judas, right? He puts people in the right place at the right time to pull off what he's going to uh, do for us to bring redemption but they freely choose it because he takes the players that he knows will make certain choices at certain times. We have, yes, we do believe absolutely in predestination. We just don't believe that people's thoughts and what they do in their choices are predetermined. We believe that they would make evil choices in whatever situations they're in, but we do believe that God uses uh, what people mean for evil. He permits them to do it as long as it achieves his highest goal. That's the key. God's deal is to, guess what, in this in this. Uh, and it gets really, really heavy, but bear with me for just a couple minutes because I wasn't going to get into this, but I, I, I better. Joseph becomes an incredible picture of the Lord Jesus Christ because we're talking about God's sovereignty. Uh, Joseph is a is rejected by his brothers. He gets the coat of many colors. He's the favorite son. Jesus is hated by their descendants because they represent the 12 tribes and the descendants of the 12 tribes is Israel. And their descendants will also have a hard time with Jesus because he is the favorite son, right? Just as Saul had a hard time with King David, Jesus, son of David, because he was favored by the Father. And you see it's Judah, uh, whose name means Judas. And, you know, when you go to the New Testament, it's the same name, different guy, but who wants, it comes up with the idea to betray him, Joseph. They throw him in a pit. Jesus was thrown in the pit, right? He's handed over to the Gentiles. Jesus was handed over to the Gentiles. He goes to the right hand of Pharaoh and feeds the world the bread of life, physically speaking. Jesus goes to the right hand of the Father, feeds the world the bread of life, spiritually speaking, eternal life. They see the one they pierce later, and Joseph weeps. There's this bawling going on. Uh, the Jews will see the one that they've pierced. They will be weeping and so forth. And I've skipped, you know, many, 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 many times what is in the text in regarding pictures of Jesus. And to me, it's a wonderful picture. But the very thing he says, we do believe, that, that's what we believe, is that they aren't on puppet strings. You're the one that has them on puppet strings based on puppet decree strings, okay? So when he says, why would God restrain evil if... If, you know, if God just plugs people in in certain places. Well, wait a minute. You're the one saying that God decrees exactly what happens. So why would he restrain them if it was specifically decreed? What we would say is this, is we don't say, and there's the, there's a caricature of other people's views, which he does often. We don't say that God doesn't restrain evil. We do believe God knows what people would do in certain situations. But we, don't, we do believe that God absolutely, by his divine providence, steps into the time-space continuum over and over again. Many, maybe uh, thousands of times a day, I believe, around the world, he moves miraculously as he, but guess what? He's not taking away 
their free will to do evil ultimately in their lives, but he can mitigate that evil at certain points to bring forth his sovereign plan. That's part of him being the master chess player. So it didn't exonerate them. They still handed Joseph over. They were in still huge trouble. And it was still going to be an incredible act of grace by Joseph later as a picture of Christ. Uh, that would be a picture of what Christ would do on the cross for the entire world, including the Jews. So when you put all this together, it's actually quite fascinating that God uses the free acts of men. And then he can step in and restrain them because they're not predetermined. And then they will respond in, to his restraint to a degree, but it's still their response. That's the key that James needs is actually realizing but not acknowledging. Yeah, I think one thing that happens over and over again when you're listening to these things, and it's, I hope that that's something that you're gathering, and I think a lot of times what they're saying is, is that God can't do something. It's not that God can't make robots. There's no, we're not sitting here saying God's just not powerful enough to be this deterministic God. We're saying God is far greater than that, that the God that we see showcased his glory in a manner that obviously allowed for free will choices of man, and in doing so, showed himself to be a far greater God than this, I'm sorry, this false understanding of who God is in his nature that he had to determine things in order to know what would take place. And so I wanted to point that out, that people think maybe get this idea that God can't be deterministic. He could have if he chosen, but guess what? The revealed word of God says that it hasn't been that way. And even uh, William Lane Craig gives a response here to that. But but I'll say before we play that response, in a way he can't be deterministic like that because that would because God doesn't do evil. Right, that's true. Yeah. So, so it, it would actually be against his nature to determine people who do evil. Uh, now, he could be deterministic if he determines they only do good and they're automatons. Yeah, exactly. And that's probably what you're thinking. But he couldn't, in this framework, determine them to do evil and then blame them for something that they couldn't help but do because they were fastened by this eternal decree. In fact, you know what, when it comes to the Topheth deal, Chad, comes to Baal and offering their children and God says, he didn't decree it, never came in my mind. You know what, uh, Jay, uh, not uh, John Wesley, but his brother, Charles Wesley, they both, he wrote a lot of songs against Calvinism. And uh, he talked about that act being charged to God by divine decree, thinking that it would be God based on Calvinism. He basically brings that up, saying this is so inconsistent consistent with who God is. And and. He called this abomination of the idea that God decreed that people would not just sacrifice their children in the fire, which Calvinists will look at that text and will say, oh yeah, he did. But then they have to based on their theology. But this idea that God predetermined that hundreds of millions of people will go to eternal fire and burn based on his decree of not really wanting them to be saved and decreeing that they would do these very evil things and then punishing them for what they couldn't help but do. He calls it a uh, hellish blasphemy. Uh, I'm not talking about John. Wesley, but Charles Wesley's brother, who wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing, since we're Christmas season, you know, beautiful Christmas songs, one of the best hymnal, right, hymnists ever. Uh, he says, uh, hell, he calls it hellish blasphemy, who charge it to the Lamb. And I thought, when I first saw that song, yeah, I'm like, wow, that's so profound, because they charge this hellish blasphemy that God's actually decreeing evil. They charge it to the Lamb, the very one who. God, who became a man and sacrificed himself for the sins of the world. You charge him with that. Do you realize how this hurts the heart of God? God got upset with Moses to the point of saying, you are not going to the promised land, Mo. Why? Why? Why isn't he going in? Because you hit the rock a second time when uh, you were supposed to speak to it, and you portrayed me as angry to the people. God didn't like the idea that Moses was portraying him in a way that was beneath his holy and loving character. It made him angry when 
portrayed him as angry when he wasn't. Well, how do you think God feels about people who are portraying him as decreeing evil over and over again and decreeing child rape? That's repugnant to him. And I warned my Calvinistic brothers and sisters, you may have fell into Calvinism because you're like, it makes sense. But now you're, 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 you're like, wait a minute, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't comport with all these different scriptures. What you do is you reject Calvinism and you just accept Biblicism and say, but God says I accept and he does hold humans responsibility, responsible. In fact, in Luke chapter 7, verse 30, it says the scribes and the lawyers refused to be baptized by John. But you know what it says? It says they rejected, it says this in Luke 7, 30, the scribes and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves in refusing to be baptized by John. So God has a first purpose. In fact, it says in John chapter 1, John came forth baptizing that through his testimony all people would be saved, right? Then John chapter 3, God so loved the world that gave the only begotten Son that whoever believes him should not perish but have everlasting life. Who gets condemned? Those who don't come to the light. Those in the world that he died for. The same world. Talks about that same world rejecting the light that he died for and gave his Son for. The point is this, is that you can set aside God's purpose for yourself, but God's still sovereign because guess what? He also has a purpose for you if you reject his grace, and that is to show forth his power, Romans chapter 9. So we can affirm all the scriptures and say yes and amen. It's when you affirm certain scriptures and leave out others that you end up in a twisted view of who God is. Yeah, and when it comes to Genesis 50, we'll let William Lane Craig give his uh, um, rebuttal here. There's a number of objections there, Bill, coming back at you in that sense. But, but I mean, let's take the, the you know that, that example from scripture, Joseph and his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. I mean, is is that a kind of a good example of Calvinism, or could it just as easily no, be applied to a Molinism? It's a, a, a great Molinism. example of Molinism. <laughs> I love the Joseph story because it so perfectly illustrates human freedom within the providence of God. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good and has brought it to pass. God didn't move the brothers to hate Joseph, to kill him, to throw him into a pit, to lie to their father, that would make God the author of evil. But God knew that if they were in this situation, they would behave in these evil ways, but that ultimately this would uh, redound to the salvation of Israel and its rescue from famine and, and all the rest. So this is a story that wonderfully illustrates, I think, how Molinism resolves the antinomy of human freedom and evil and God's sovereign providence. But in the case, for example, uh, was it Reuben who said, let's not kill Joseph, let's throw him in the pit? What we can say is that God knew that th this brother would do that and that the others would freely listen to him rather than say that God is determining them to act in this way. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that the biblical author had Molinism in mind. Of course not. What I'm saying is that this is a theory to reconcile sovereignty and human freedom that is consistent with the Bible. It affirms the facts of sovereignty and freedom without bruising or uh, annihilating one set of the data. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest things to, to understand is that that's what we're trying to do is look at what the scriptures say in totality and then come back and say, okay, so when we look at the story of Joseph, what's taking place there? Is God determining them to throw him in a pit? Is God determining and making them do those things and giving them their desire so that they would do that? And obviously that's not what we would believe. But James is going to use another text here 
And he's going to talk specifically about in Isaiah how that actually proves determinism. Okay, so when the Bible in Isaiah chapter 10 says that God brings the Assyrians to punish Israel and then turns around and punishes the Assyrians for the haughty attitude of their heart. Ah. How is that not more clear than what you just said? You just said that you can derive something from the text and you derived your, your desire to say that Calvinism is causing God to be the author of evil and so on and so forth. And we know he won't do that. You can derive something from the text in that way. Well, well, Joe, so is, is this text good? Is, is Isaiah 10 with the Assyrians a good to, sh- good to show? Because he's showing that, hey, God's going to bring judgment through the Assyrians, and he's going to judge the Assyrians for doing it, ultimately. Right, which is, again, uh, it's so counter to Calvinism, because Calvinism teaches that the very evil that Israel did was predetermined. They teach that the Assyrians and the evil they did was predetermined. When you look at the story closely, they own their own evil, in fact, God, throughout uh, Jeremiah, you know, uh, throughout Isaiah, throughout Ezekiel, uh, sometimes you deal with the northern kingdom, uh, usually when Ezekiel and Jeremiah, uh, the southern kingdom. Uh, it's very, very clear that they're making decisions that the Lord pleads with them not to make. So Israel ends up in their own by making their own decisions to rebel against the Lord. He brings judgments. He's not like in a charade saying, I'm appalled that you're doing this, when really he's not because he determined all along. But when he brings the Assyrians... I don't know if James White realizes, uh, in fact, there was an aha moment when, uh, if you hear in the background, I thought it was kind of funny, but I think we both chuckled, because when he says, from the evil in their own hearts, and then you hear uh, uh, William Lane Craig go, aha, you know, because he's saying, yeah, it's their own hearts, it's their choice, it's not fixed by decree, I'm sure that's what Craig was thinking, and we're thinking the same thing, it's funny that, so it's interesting, he'll, he'll use our language, but he means it. It's like the cults, not that he's a cult in a cult, but they believe it's totally, they'll use similar language, but they mean they're saying it with a totally different mindset. When we look at him judging the Assyrians, well, he calls, he says he's going to use the Assyrians. When you look at all the texts on uh, the Assyrians that, that deal with uh, them coming against the northern kingdom, he calls them his battle axe, that he's going to discipline Israel with his battle axe, the Assyrians. And he brings them in 150 years before he goes after uh, Judah, which he pleads with, and they become even worse in Assyria or the uh, the northern kingdom eventually. But it's interesting what he says to them, and I know we're, we have to keep moving on, so I'll just make this point quick, but it's it's interesting what he says to them. He says that you went further. God says you went further than what he was expecting, or not expecting. He says they went further than God had uh, planned. In other words, God planned to discipline them, but because of your evil hearts, you took it even further, and therefore their destruction is going to be worse now. Now that's pretty heavy, because that shows me James, if it exactly was exactly how God predetermined it, said, I'm going to make you make these decisions, it would have been exactly how God predetermined it. But God plugged them in and said, I'm going to use you to discipline. But it shows that they even went over and beyond what, now the Lord knew they were going to do that, but they had free moral choice. They had libertarian free will, and they went beyond even the judgments. They got greedy in their wickedness and, and in their hatred for Israel. And then God spanks them even worse, disciplines them even worse, punished them even worse, because there wasn't predeterminism. Otherwise, God would say, good job, that's exactly what I predetermined. No, they were acting upon libertarian free will, and they went further than God had, you know, he obviously allowed it, but he went further, they went further than God had planned for them as far as, so when I say further than God has planned, I'm not saying that God didn't know it, I'm making that very clear, so it'd be, you'd be uh, doing wrong to misquote me there, 
But what I'm saying is God clearly in the text itself states that he's going to discipline them even stronger because they overrode what they were to do to Israel, showing that there's libertarian free will. Yeah, with, without a doubt, without a doubt. And here's how William Lane Craig responded to the Isaiah 10 as well. We agree on that, James, that God issues his decree for his good pleasure. And I would say this factors into it human freedom and how human beings would choose. And it is God's pleasure not to determine creatures to do evil, not to determine them to sin. And it's so ironic because you keep appealing to these scriptural examples that I think support my view. How can God punish the Assyrians for something that he causes them to do? No, what it is is that God, knowing that the Syrians would freely invade at that time, uses the unrighteous Assyrians to do something that he knew they would freely do, and then he can justly punish them because this unrighteous act was done of their own free will. So uh, over and over again, I'm finding that when I read these texts from a Molinist perspective, it seems to me much more plausible than thinking that God is moving the wills of creatures to do evil. Yeah, it's always so interesting when you think of a lot of these things brought back to their logical conclusions, like when James White even says things like he had to restrain them. Well, what was going on before? Was there free will before he restrained them? I mean, when was that happening and when was that taking place? But then he restrained them. So when did they stop having the free will only when he restrained? It just seems really ridiculous a lot of times. But now James is going to go into a text and this is one of his, I would say, uh, one of those bullish areas where if it came to a, a debate or so forth with him, you know, Romans 9, Ephesians chapter 1, John chapter 6. Ephesians 1 right here, he's going to link this up with determinism from the will of God, from the counsel of God, and so forth. So let's get, uh, let's see what James has to say on Ephesians 1 regarding this topic. When I go to Ephesians 1 and I talk about the Eutychia of his thelematos, the, the, the kind intention, that which is pleasing to him of his will, and that is made to be the very source of everything God has done in predestination, election, it, it's the counsel of his thelematos, his boule of his thelematos in verses 10 and 11 that d- determines everything that takes place. He's worked all things after the counsel of his will. Yes. How is that? That, that, is, that is central to what the Calvinist is saying in regards to God, how God is working, and it is coming forth from the text let me let me give get get with chapter with verse 10 so we have it with a view to this is talk about he purposed according to his kind intention there it is eutychia which he purposed in him with a view and administration suitable to the fullness of times that is the summing up of all things in christ things in the heavens and things upon the earth in him also we have obtained an inheritance having predestined according to the purpose of of hit to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. This yeah. is the summing okay. up of all of creation, that. his decree being accomplished. For example, the decree of Yahweh, Psalm 2, about the Messiah, all of these things, his decree is being accomplished, and it is the expression of the counsel of his will, not a decree that is based upon 
some type of external thing that delimits what he is feasible for him to do and cannot do. So, Joe, he's taking Ephesians 1, and he's saying, hey, this is the decree. It's not some external thing. Notice how he's using that word. External thing where then he makes a decision. But this is from his decree, and here it is. Here's predestination. Let me throw that on your lap. (laughs) Yeah, and the question is, is we believe absolutely that he works all things together according to the counsel of his will with his kind attention is, you know, uh, thelema, uh, the Greek word, thelematos, uh, with his kind intention, his kind will. Uh, it says in Ephesians chapter 1 that he's predestined us in love. You know, It says that we're predestined according to his purpose or plan. Well, what's his plan? Here's, some, here's a couple decrees that James is talking about. He that believes will be saved, right? That's the decree of Jesus. You know, he that doesn't believe will be damned. Okay? <coughs> so his plan is that whoever puts their trust in the Messiah will be saved. Whoever rejects Messiah will be damned. The third works everything after the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1, uh, they were sealed after they believed. That's Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, part of it, his will is, well, his will is that all whosoever will would be saved. His will is, is the kindness of his will is that it's his kindness to the Jews that rejected him, Paul says. It's his kindness that leads you to repentance. But in your unrepentant, your stubborn heart, you stored up wrath for yourselves in the day of God's wrath. All those things are part work into his will, that whosoever will would be saved. It works into his will that he allows people to say no, okay? So he takes into account all things and his plans for the human race, that whosoever believes would be saved, who doesn't would be damned. So if you look at that, it doesn't mean that we don't have choices. It doesn't mean, I mean, later in Ephesians, you know, it says, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God by which you've been sealed in the day of redemption, Ephesians 4.30. How could we grieve the Spirit of God if we're doing exactly what we're predetermined to do? It makes no sense at all. A little bit later, right after he says that, he warns them who are going to grieve, are grieving the Spirit of God. He warns them if they practice this viceless in Ephesians 5, verses 2 through 4 and 5 there. He says those who do these things, he ha- have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. And he says, you know, don't be partakers with them. You were made, you're the light of the Lord. Don't be, you know, partake of their darkness and become children of, and, be, uh, and become partakers with the children of wrath. So he lets those know who are even sealed that they can grieve the Holy Spirit by, whereby they've been sealed the day of redemption, that they can fail to enter into the kingdom because they end up partnering with the sons of disobedience and become children of wrath right along with them, Paul says, and they can be deceived. So it doesn't mean that there is not, it doesn't mean everything is fixed. It means that God knows what people will do and that he gives them not only his love and his plan of redemption, but he gives them the opportunity to accept that or reject it. Otherwise, we're teaching universalism. And we don't teach universalism, and Calvinists don't either. What we teach is that you have a free response, and God accounts that or brings that into the account of his will because that's part of what he's working according to the counsel of his will. It's pretty simple. No, it is. Yeah, amen. I I think it's really important for us to to get to this. And this, this last sort of portion we want to talk about is something he appealed to over and over again. Now, I will say this. Obviously, I'm uh, cringing when I hear about, you know, William Lane Craig calling Molina, a Jesuit priest, a theological giant. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to lie. That's something where I'm getting, I'm very uncomfortable with that with that sort of thing. You know, we can find very intelligent men that come up with great, great intelligent theories and, and so forth. But a theological giant, I, I, I had a really tough time with that. But here's the thing. James White, in this next clip, is going to appeal to ecclesiology, appeal to history, of the church over and over again. So we're going to we're going to parcel these clips together so you guys can hear it 
And then we're going to talk about just how that's actually expressed when we look back into church history. But what did Isaiah intend his audience? They didn't have Molinism. So they no. could not have understood these texts. No one could understand Genesis 50-20. No one could understand Isaiah 10. I guess oh. we could just go, well, you know, it, it's going to take oh. another couple thousand years before we can know. <laughs> Do you see a difference between that approach and what you just did with Genesis 50, where you go, yes, this theory comes along 3,000 years later, but we can consistently apply it to what was written all that way back then and come up with an interpretation of that. Do you see a difference between having our theology derived from the text and having something that determines what our theology can be that comes from outside the text? If you take something that was developed 1500 years later, read it back into something that was about 1400 years before Christ, so almost 3000 years later, as if that's what was trying to be communicated by Joseph. So we've this has been discussed, and, and if you want to get real philosophical about it, by Jonathan Edwards and others for quite some time. But I just point out that in dealing with our subject, Molinism, we're dealing with a perspective unknown in the history of the church for 1,500 years. And it doesn't come, up, come into expression until someone is seeking to fundamentally undercut the gospel being preached by the reformers, by Calvin and Luther. And so it's a more of a modern situation, but it wasn't something that people reading scripture for 1500 years said, oh yeah, there it is. You know, it's interesting, Joe, because you already mentioned the book that he wrote alongside in like a debate format with Dave Hunt. And one of the things I've heard James, as I said, I've listened to his show a number of times. I don't even know how many hours I've listened to different shows and different things, topics, solo scriptura, things he's talked about. But one of the things he talked about was that he asked Dave Hunt about his traditions. And Dave Hunt basically said, I don't have any traditions. And in fact, James White, which it's still up, it's called Blinded by Tradition, an open letter to Dave Hunt, which is basically expressing to him that you're so steeped in tradition, whatever that may be, that you don't even realize that you have all these traditions. Well, pot, meat, kettle. And when I'm hearing James White over and over again, 1,500 yeah. years, 3,000 years, Oh, wow. did Joseph have that in mind or did Isaiah have that in mind and so forth over and over and over again, not recognizing and I believe has been put in his place quite clearly by a scholar, um, Dr. Ken Wilson, Ken as we Wilson, talked yeah. about, who we've interviewed on the show. Um, and that is just such a sad fabrication. I mean, not a fabrication, but pot meat kettle, uh, not understanding the skeletons in that Calvinistic closet. He knows his. they're there. That's what's sad about he it. He does know they're there. And and maybe we could go a little bit about that, especially how he how he kind of ended that there uh, on that clip that we just led there. The the fact that he is just like I said it is so interesting that he's piggybacking and saying, well, it's not in church history until Molina and, and so forth. So you know what, it just can't be there. And this is what this is what the apostles taught. This is what they taught, and not even recognizing the steep tradition that he's a part of that doesn't go back all the way to the apostles or the early church. Yeah, in fact, uh, he's steeped in a tradition that was made popular uh, by Calvin, who was a contemporary of Molina, basically. I mean, you know, uh, Molina was part of the Counter-Reformation, right? And Calvin, (laughs) uh, when Luther, I mean, Luther, you're talking about Luther, just, you know, a little bit before Calvin, as far as when he started, you know, the, the 95 Thesis and so forth, and then Calvin on his heels, you know, alive at the same time, but a bit younger. And then uh, a Molina. So 
it's it's interesting because this is Calvinism versus Molinism, and they're in the same century. Uh, the difference is is that Calvin, you know, you can say, well, that's three thousand years after Joseph too. That's fifteen years, fifteen hundred years after Jesus too. So it is a very much a case of uh, pot meat, meat kettle. The the difference is is the elements. There's elements in very clear elements that we would agree with. We don't we're, we're not Molinists, but uh, Molinism gives a far closer account uh, to the data in Scripture, uh, uh, both supporting the sovereignty of God, the, the loving and righteous character of God, and the uh, responsibility of human beings in paying for their sins because of libertarian free will, than does Calvinism. Calvinism doesn't give account, account of that at all. But uh, it's interesting because uh, this is why I say we, we return to Biblicism. What does the Scripture say? But where you, if you've been watching this show for any time, you know we appeal a lot to the early church fathers because these were the disciples of the apostles and the disciples of the disciples of the apostles and so forth. And not that they were right in every area, but oftentimes when you see a consensus with them, uh, especially when it comes to soteriology regarding how we're saved, you know, they taught that we're saved by grace through faith. Uh, sometimes they wrote in the vein of James more than Paul. That's that's no doubt about that. But when you look at what they taught, let's let's go let's go 1,400 years before Calvin and before Molina, and before Luther. Let's go a few hundred years uh, before Augustine, because you could say, well, you met, you said earlier that, yeah, Augustine, you know, basically uh, took this these ideas, or Calvin took them from Augustine. Yeah, he did. Well, so that's early church fathers. No, not really, you know. I mean, I have the, you know, anti-Nicene fathers, and Augustine's not in there for a reason. Uh, he's not an early church father. But when you look at the apostolic fathers, you know, if you look at Polycarp and Ignatius and, and so forth. Uh, if and you look up the uh, the early church fathers, you'll see a constant emphasis that there is free moral agency that we're held responsible for God, and that God is exonerated from any kind of uh, idea that He's decreed that we must make evil decisions. In fact, this is what's interesting to me, and, I, and and hopefully this is helpful to the listener. When I was a new Christian, and I would hear, you know, back then it was James Montgomery Boyce and other Calvinists that were. On, on the radio and so forth, and I hear these guys, but I was studying the scripture. And I was just I had I didn't have all these traditions. I was reading the word of God. I didn't know any other Christians. I was just reading the scripture, and I saw all these scriptures that talked about Jesus' love for the world and how He died for everybody, and how that I had to abide in Him or I could be cut off as a branch and thrown in the fire and burned. Then I'd hear these popular radio preachers. I'm like, man, are they reading the same Bible I'm reading? You know. And then what was a, a breath of fresh air uh, is I bought the Antinicene Fathers, the, the Church Fathers for the you know, first couple centuries and then beyond that a bit of church history. And I began to read the early church fathers and I thought, wow, they're teaching the same thing that I thought the apostles were teaching in regard to a human responsibility and needing to abide in Christ and continue in the faith and, and the fact that we are free moral agents with libertarian free will. So as I looked at that, I thought it was astonishing, but this was something that I thought was fascinating. I was debating with some of my Calvinistic friends after I had found people to fellowship with and some of my Calvinistic friends would, uh, I'd use certain scriptures to combat them. And one of my favorite scriptures, I used several of them, but one of my favorite scriptures to use against them was Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39, uh, because they would argue against free will and so forth. And I'd say, hey, bro, I go, you know, how come Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem? You know, that's in the book of Luke, right? How come he, his heart breaks, you know? How come he's condemning the Pharisees for shutting, up, shutting them out of the kingdom of God? You know, how come he's saying things like this? You know, I, I, I'm saying these things that you may be saved to the Jewish leaders. I'm saying these things to you that you may be saved, but you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. 
How come he's saying that he has a will, but they're unwilling? How come you have the parable in chapter 22 of the book of, of the Gospel of Matthew where he invites everybody, but those who aren't elect in the end are those who were unwilling to come? And then how come in Matthew 23, 37 through 39, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he that, you know, them that slay the uh, prophets, you know, and uh, kill those who are sent to her, how often I would have gathered, how often I would have, how often I willed to gather your children together as a hen does her chicks. I wanted to bring you in, but you were unwilling. And in other words, they would be there except for the will. And uh, when I look at that, I look at that, I'd say, wow, now I'm reading the early church fathers. I'm like, wow, they're using the same arguments I'm using. Thinking that I was ahead of my time or something. I was like way behind by like, you know, almost 2000 years. And uh, I'd read Irenaeus, you know, and Justin Martyr and the earliest, the, the top apologist before Augustine, the Roman Catholic theologian came around and I, they blew him away in my opinion because if he was a great theologian, because I was, I said to you, Chad, I said, mm, I wish Craig went to say he was a great theologian, Molina, because if he was really a great theologian, I told Chad he would have left Catholicism. Well, if Augustine was a great theologian, same argument, he would have left Catholicism. He wouldn't have twisted scripture that, to say, kill people that don't come back to the Roman Catholic Church because Jesus said, compel them to come in. And compel them to come in doesn't just mean by word, but if they don't listen to your words, it means to kill them, use the sword. He twisted scripture, gave us, gave the Roman Catholic Church uh, a twist in scripture that basically justified uh, the Inquisitions later, right? Crusades and what have you. And I think it's quite interesting when we look at these passages, and I'm looking at Matthew 23 and when Jesus is pleading with them, and how often I would, you know, but you would not. As I look at that text, <coughs> And I and I, I think, wow, Irenaeus. I know Calvinists aren't around yet. Who's he? What's he talking about? Then I came to realize, well, these guys are coming against the Gnostics. They're coming against those who from which Augustine sprung, and Augustine reverted back to his Gnostic arguments when he's coming against Pelagius. They both swung the pendulum too far, and he went back to Gnosticism, and Calvin basically took those Gnostic influences. And that's what's popular in the church today among Calvinists. They don't realize that they basically are the, have inherited the theological arguments of those who were against God and Antichrist in the second and third century. Let me read from Irenaeus. Now think about this. Irenaeus is a disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp, Chad, was a disciple of who? John. John the Apostle, who wrote the book of Revelation, who wrote the Gospel of John, right? Well, listen to this. Irenaeus says this, okay? So we're talking long before Molina, Calvin, and Luther. We're talking, you know, second century, disciple of a disciple of the Apostle John. This expression of our Lord, Irenaeus says, and he's going to be quoting Matthew 27, or Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39. This expression of our Lord, says Irenaeus, how often would have I gathered thy, to get, uh, gathered thy children together, and thou wouldest not set forth the ancient law of human liberty? Because God made man a free agent from the beginning, possessing his own power, even as he does his own soul, to obey the behest of God voluntarily and not by compulsion of God. He wasn't a believer in compatibilism or secondary causes or any kind of a compulsion by God that would fix upon someone a decree where they were basically not doing, their, making their own choices at all. He goes on to write, Irenaeus, and he's, these are the two top apologists of the second century that God used to hold the church together, okay, by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, Irenaeus and Justin Martyr, we say we're oh, probably yeah. the two top guys, right? For there's no coercion with God, but a good will toward us is present with him continually. And therefore does he give good counsel to all. 
And in man, as well as in angels, he has placed the power of choice, for angels are rational beings, so that those who had yielded obedience might justly possess what is good, given indeed by God, it's by grace, but preserved by themselves. On the other hand, they who have not obeyed shall with justice be not found in possession of the good and shall receive condign punishment. For God did kindly, for God did kindly, for God did kindly bestow on them what was good, but they themselves did not diligently keep it, nor deem it something precious, but poured contempt upon his supereminent goodness, rejecting therefore the good, and as it were, spewing it out. They shall all deservedly incur the just judgment of God, which also the Apostle Paul testifies in his epistle to the Romans, where he says, But dost thou despise the riches of his goodness and patience and long suffering? That's God's grace, brothers and sisters, being ignorant that the goodness of God leads thee to repentance. But according to thy hardness and impenitent heart, thou treasurest to thyself wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. But glory and honor, he continues to quote Romans chapter 2, but glory and honor, he says, to everyone that doeth good. God therefore has given that which is good, as the apostle tells us in the epistle. So obviously, Irenaeus did not understand Romans 9 the way Calvinists do, because he starts with Romans 2, saying God's kind intention was actually save uh, those that rejected him. And of course, guess what? He still works them according to the counsel as well. Okay, you're not going to choose life that I intended to give you? Well, I have plan B for you then, because you're going to choose one or the other because I am sovereign. You don't choose what I want you to choose. Well, then you're going to choose what I'm going to choose for you next, because you've ultimately made your choice to reject grace. As the apostle tells us in the epistle, and they who work it shall receive glory and honor, because they have done that which is good when they had it in their power to not do it. But those who do it not shall receive the just judgment of God because they did not work good when they had it in themselves or in their power to do it. I'll give you one more quote from Justin Martyr. For not like other things as trees and... Uh, uh, quadrupeds, yeah. Yeah, qu- quadrupeds, <laughs> qu- quadrupeds, which cannot act by choice. They have no choice. Did God make man? He didn't make man like that. For neither would he be worthy of reward or praise did he... Uh, not of himself choose the good, but were created for this end. Nor, if he were evil, would he be worthy of the punishment, not being evil of himself, but being able to be nothing else than what he was made. I mean, and there's a lot of quotes from Justin Barter and Irenaeus just like that. I mean, we could spend a whole program, five programs, quoting the early church fathers, showing that they did believe that man was making his own choice in response to God's grace or not, and that man was accountable. And they actually talk not only that man is rewarded for making righteous choice, but he is to blame and punished. And he can only be punished, as the church fathers say over and over again, because the evil is of themselves and not of God. Yeah, and I think this is important, too, because I, I you know, I love looking at the, the early church and, and looking at it in light of Scripture and comparing it to Scripture. And it's really funny because I, I, I we have to play this last clip, and this will be the last clip we play but it's really interesting because obviously when it comes to the Reformation, there's a lot of great things that did take place in seeing the just the, the waywardness of the Catholic Church and how off in terms of comparative to Scripture it truly was. But the reality is, is one of the reasons why we don't like, oh, we're, we're Protestant, we're Reformed all the time, is because the reality is that there wasn't enough reforming done. And I think James White would at least agree to that when it comes to baptism. Right. Um, you have John Calvin. I mean, Servetus died because of his views on baptism and, and John Calvin had him killed. 
Because John and, Calvin believed in infant baptism, yeah. And because John Calvin believed in infant baptism. So there were certain things, just like, you know, obviously with Luther as an Augustinian monk, there were certain things that needed to continue to be reformed that were not reformed and were not fixed until later. And that's why you'll see John you know, Wesley. 1689 as well as, you know, on certain confessionals, because that puts away the, you know, infant baptism and, and so forth. So this is really important. But so I want you to hear... A response, because the reality is, is that James White's saying, I just get it from the scripture. I don't know what you're talking about. I just read through Isaiah and I see, I, I see the attributes of God and everything. Like it was all just in pill form, very easy for everyone to understand, not realizing, honestly, a lot of the theology that happened before them and literally taking it all with them. And I want you to hear this clip from Wayne Lake Craig responding to the idea that the reformers just took everything from scripture and that's all we have. I have here... Richard Muller's massive four-volume history of post-reformational reformed dogmatics. Uh, and anyone who thinks that reformed dogmatics is simply read out of Scripture uh, doesn't know the history of reformed theology. The, these volumes are permeated with theological constructs, philosophical models, philosophical principles, that shape and guide Reformed dogmatics. And I've given examples of these already. God's necessity, there's nothing in Scripture that says that God exists in every possible world, rather than just in this world. God's timelessness, there's nothing in Scripture that proves that God transcends time rather than endures throughout all time. God's spacelessness, again, there's nothing in Scripture that says that God transcends space rather than exists every point in space, or the simplicity of God. Certainly God doesn't have physical parts, but you can't prove scripturally that God's essence is existence, that God doesn't have distinct properties. And yet all of these are affirmed by Reformed theologians who took over from the medieval scholastics, the Roman Catholic doctrine of God lock, stock, and barrel, uh, including those attributes that I just mentioned. So I found that very interesting yes, that he added good, that actually. he added that in the end because I thought that was really interesting. And, and before I'm going to hand it off to you for that, I wanted to let people know who who are on here. If you guys are on the East Coast, uh, Pastor Joe and myself are going to be out in Massachusetts at the retreat at Norwich Lake. Uh, it's we're calling it the Men of the Word. We're going to be talking about that very subject, being men of the Word as people that do believe in sola scriptura and so forth, and then come forth after reading sola scriptura and denying doctrines such as Calvinism. And right now, if you sign up before the 17th, I know I'm dating it. Tony's going to be mad in the back there. I'm dating it right now. But if you sign up before the 17th, you get 20% off. And uh, it'd be awesome to have you guys there. We'll be in Massachusetts. It's supposed to be a beautiful, beautiful area that we're in sharing the gospel and having some great fellowship. And we got the information on blessedhopechapel.org and you can find all the information. Yeah. And a couple of Blessed Hopes over in New York set it up. They picked Massachusetts because uh, they knew a lot of people can come from different areas. So if you're in, the, in those areas or nearby, I know one brother, I think, that's going all the way from Washington across the country uh, that's going to be there. So we'd love to meet you, fellowship with you. Uh, and it's just awesome to see what the Lord's doing. So excited about that. Amen. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. 
That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.